already been said a couple times, Happy New Year 2020. That really is insane. I'm not even sure Marty McFly would have known what to do with this year. You would definitely need a sports almanac to have predicted the Patriots to lose yesterday, I think. Um, if you're new, uh, my name's Jamie. Uh, I'm one of the pastors. Uh, get the opportunity most weeks to open up the scriptures as we gather in this place, God's people and those coming in to explore the truth claims of Christianity alongside of us. Uh, and this morning is no different. We're gonna dive into a new sermon series this morning that's gonna carry us throughout the course of the spring, a series entitled Light of the Gospel. Um, and that is a, a play on words of sorts, because as we're gonna see diving into this book of the Bible that I'll make mention of uh, in just a moment, uh, we're gonna see a both and. We're gonna see both the way the gospel shines light into our own hearts, illuminating our hearts, awakening us to the beauty and wonder of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. But then there's also this in light of the gospel kind of language that we're gonna see through this series as God then uses us, sends us out as ambassadors of that very gospel that's changed us. The book of the Bible that we're gonna study is none other than 2 Corinthians. It's a bit nostalgic for me personally, being that the very first book of the Bible that I got the privilege of preaching uh, in the context of this church was 1 Corinthians going back to the early part of 2015, the prequel, you might say, a book loaded with famous verses and passages of scripture, as many of you are aware of, including the often quoted at weddings chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13. But lest we think that the sequel is less impressive than the original, here are just a few of the verses that show up in Paul's follow-up letter to the church of Corinth. Chapter one, verse 20 of 2 Corinthians, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. Chapter four, verse six, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Chapter four, verse seven, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Chapter four, verses 17 and 18. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Chapter five, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Chapter five, verse 21. A favor to Martin Luther. For our sake, he became him to... Uh, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Chapter eight, verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And lastly, chapter 12, verse nine. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's just the highlight reel, so to speak in a book that gives us a window, not only into the Apostle Paul's heart, but his ability to apply the gospel in the moment, helping us to see the implications of the gospel in, in real time, in real situations, so that I trust as we work our way through this book over the course of the spring that, that God will all the more grow us in understanding how the gospel applies to everyday situations and struggles as a result of our time walking through 2 Corinthians, a book that as, as I'll make mention of throughout the course of the spring, has forever changed my life, a book that I trust that God will undoubtedly use to open our eyes all the more to the beauty and indispensability of the gospel. With that said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to 
2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's as good a place as any to begin a book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can uh, grab one underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. There should be a Bible somewhere nearby there. You can use that Bible during your time with us if you don't own a Bible or the Bible you have with you is difficult to track in terms of translation, please take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you. Let me pray for us and, and we'll jump in and we'll, we'll get going. God, thank you for this book that we are about to journey through. Thank you that there are 66 books that make up the canon of Scripture, not 65, and that this is one of those 66. God, I pray that you would move mightily by the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, that you would reveal to us the the parts of us that are residually self-reliant, those parts of us that don't want to lean on you, trust you, depend upon you, that you would use this book to show us our desperate need for you, God, that you would use this book to show us that it's okay to not only acknowledge our weaknesses, but to boast in them, that in doing so, we declare the power and strength and might of our flexing God and all of your glory, all of your splendor, all of your grace. May it be put on display through our study of 2 Corinthians over the course of the spring. Holy Spirit, apart from your, your work in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives, as we gather in this place week in and week out over the next few months, this will be a hopeless endeavor. This will be an exercise in futility, an academic endeavor at best, and we want more than that. So please move and stir and work individually, collectively, that we might be forever changed as a result of our time in this book over the course of our time together this spring. Ask it in the name of the risen King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going we're gonna to get into the reason behind this letter to the church in Corinth in a lot more detail in the weeks to come, being that Paul's intention in, in writing this letter, it's explicitly included throughout the letter. So I'm not going to jump ahead of, of the game this morning, so to speak, put the cart before the horse. We'll, we'll walk through some of those reasons as we get to them. But for the purpose of this morning, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to focus most of our attention on the author and audience of this letter in order that we might see something of God's incomprehensible grace, which we really need to look no further than the first two verses to see. Look at verse one, Paul. All right, let me just stop there. Many of us are familiar with the Apostle Paul. We've walked through some of Paul's letters in the past. If you've been around uh, for any significant amount of time with our church, the man's so famous within the realm of historical Christianity that he doesn't need a last name. Some may find it surprising to learn that Paul was not one of the original 12 apostles. In fact, as the 12 were seeking to spread the gospel and establish the New Testament church, Paul was on a mission to destroy the New Testament church. In those days, as many of you know, he was referred to as Saul, a devout Pharisee. Like many of the devout Pharisees in his day, he didn't much care for Jesus nor Jesus' followers. And so he made it a mission to persecute the church, even to the point of death. So that if you read the account of Stephen, the first post-resurrection Christian martyr in Acts chapter 6 through 8, you find Saul on the scene not only 
witnessing Stephen's execution, not only looking in on it, but commending it, championing it. Acts chapter eight, the first three verses of that book of the Bible, that chapter say this, and Saul approved of his execution, of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul, violent hater, insolent opponent of Christianity, committed to doing away with the body and bride that Jesus shed his blood for, happily disrupting family dinners and and devotionals, dragging Christ followers from their homes to prison. To use the language of chapter eight, verse three of Acts, Saul was ravaging the church. And God reached down by his grace and said, no more, you're mine. His conversion to Christianity, as we know, took place on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter nine, where he had an encounter with the risen Jesus and went from a religiously lost blind man to a child of God with eyes to see and savor the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He was given the name Paul in scripture and commissioned by the risen Lord as one of the early church's first missionaries so that the same man who had once made it his ambition to destroy the New Testament church became a pioneersman for church planting. That's what God does. Paul planted churches all over the Mediterranean landscape and went on to author more New Testament books of the Bible than anyone else. And it was all by God's grace. Paul didn't pull himself up by his own bootstraps. He didn't earn his way into the family of God. On the basis of his own merits, in fact, Paul did everything necessary to assure that he'd never be welcomed into the family of God. Some of us, on the one hand, and we'll see both hands by the time we're, we're done this morning. On the one hand, some of us come into this place this morning believing that God loves the good guys and hates the bad guys, so be a good guy and God will love you. God loves the morally religious people of this world, and that's just not true. We talked about it at Christmas. There are no naughty and nice people, only naughty people and Jesus who came to save naughty people like you and me. That For those who might be inclined to believe that they can earn God's love on the basis of their own morality, the question begs to be answered, and we've presented this before as a church, how good is good enough? How do you know when you've crossed that religious threshold? I mean, none of us has more religious street cred than Paul, right? Conservative Jewish upbringing, education at the feet of Gamaliel, the most prominent rabbi of his day, zeal for God's law, persecution of Christians whom he had considered to be apostate Jews. I mean, Paul thought he was one of the good guys until he came face to face with the risen Jesus. Listen to to the ways in which Paul describes his conversion and and notice the overwhelming mercy and grace of God in his articulation. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses nine and 10. Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Philippians chapter three, verses four through nine, Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. (laughs) Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, 
as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, Paul says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. He's talking about his resume there. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having, he says, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, morality, but that which comes through faith in Christ. His perfect morality, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. First Timothy chapter one, verses 12 through 17, he says it this way. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judges me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But, Paul says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Hey, these are the words of a man saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, forever changed, so that every time you and I see the word, the name Paul in the scriptures, it's a declaration of the sovereign grace of God in rescuing religiously lost sinners. John Stott says, One can but magnify the grace of God that he should have had mercy on such a rabid bigot as Saul of Tarsus and indeed on such proud, rebellious, and wayward creatures as ourselves. So that if you're a Christian, you're meant to marvel at the grace of God this morning. We haven't even gotten to the second word of this book of the Bible. Marvel that Jesus' brightness shined on the retina of your human soul. Marvel that you went from blind orphan groping in the darkness for something to hope in to having eyes to see and savor the glory of Jesus Christ, a child of God, saved by grace, given a home and a name. Not only that, we're meant to walk away from this very first word of this book of the Bible with hope that God can rescue the most hard-hearted, religiously lost sinners and even make them ambassadors and church planters. That's vision for 2020. Again, to quote Stott, he says, there are many souls of Tarsus in the world today. Like them, like him, they are richly endowed with natural gifts of intellect and character. Men and women of personality, energy, initiative, and drive, having the courage of their non-Christian convictions, utterly sincere but sincerely mistaken, traveling, as it were, from Jerusalem to Damascus instead of from Damascus to Jerusalem. Hard stubborn, even fanatical in their rejection of Jesus Christ, but they are not beyond his sovereign grace, Stott says. We need more faith, more holy expectation, which will lead us to pray for them. As we may be sure the early Christians prayed for Saul, that Christ will first prick them with his goads and then decisively lay hold of them. So that I would ask this morning, is there anyone you've given up on, particularly among the religious lost, We live amongst a religiously lost backdrop, a land of cultural Christianity. Many steeple-adorned buildings, hyper-churched, yet under-gospeled. 
Let the story of Saul sink deep into your heart as a testimony of the wonder of God's sovereign grace. Coming back to this morning's passage, yeah, we're going to get out of here before January 6th, I promise. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In other New Testament letters, Paul refers to himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. Here he uses the language not of servant, but of rather apostle, an apostleship that he declares that he didn't will for himself, but rather was willed by God. It's the kind of intentional language that we're gonna see throughout this letter as we work our way through it, intentional on Paul's part, because one of the things he's looking to do in this letter is to defend the legitimacy of his apostolic calling. Amidst this sea of people believing that that Paul had suffered too much to be a spirit-filled apostle. It's that kind of of thinking that, that would say that If you have enough faith, then you'll experience health, wealth, and prosperity in life. And if you're not experiencing those things, then your faith probably isn't where it needs to be. And this book of the Bible is going to completely blow up that thing that we now refer to in our day and age as the prosperity gospel. It's going to show it just not to be true at all. It can't be true on the basis of what Paul's going to go on, not not only to say, but to show of his own life experience in the wake of God's decisive work in laying hold of him as a son. This letter is intended to address the nature of suffering in the Christian life. If you come in and 2019 was brutal, allow this letter to sink deep into your heart and help make sense of what God was doing in the rearview mirror. And let's also, as we move into 2020 this year, as we step into more of the present tense reality of what we are to encounter Let's allow this letter to sink in in the midst of our afflictions and sufferings to make sense of who God is and what he's actually doing in our lives. This book is filled with references to Paul's life and ministry meant to vindicate Paul in his calling, bringing us along in a unique way as though we were on Paul's journeys with him a little more free-flowing than some of Paul's other letters in that it's not the the well-ordered, systematic approach, you might say, that we see in books like Romans or Ephesians. Again, the the benefit of the free-flowing nature of the letter, it allows us to see the Apostle Paul applying the gospel in real-life situations in real time. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy's mother, Many of you may remember this from our study of the book of Acts. Uh, His mother was Jewish. His father was a Greek. He was acquainted with the scriptures from childhood, perhaps even raised in a home that by faith looked forward to the, the coming of the promised Messiah. Whether Timothy had seen it or not with his own eyes, he undoubtedly would have heard of the Apostle Paul's visit to his hometown, Timothy's hometown of Lustra, which we see in the book of Acts where Paul was willing to face martyrdom for the sake of Christ as the crowds tried to stone him to death in that very town. I mean, who knows what kind of impact that that would have had on a young man like Timothy, not to mention his entire family. The attempted martyrdom of Paul perhaps giving rise not only to a family coming to faith, but the preparing of a future missionary and pastor in young Timothy. So that Timothy's name in verse one, is a reminder of God showing himself strong in weakness, redemptive in suffering. Another theme that we're gonna see throughout the course of this letter, one of Paul's great aims. Birthed out of a a near-death experience, Paul's near-death experience in the city of Lustra is one of the greatest stories of discipleship in all of scripture. As Timothy would go on to become like a son to Paul, fellow soldier of Christ Jesus, 
a future pastor of the church in Ephesus, so intimately connected to Paul's life and ministry that Timothy is either mentioned or addressed in 10 of Paul's New Testament letters. Again, the grace of God at work. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Corinth was the capital of the the Roman province of Achaia, political, commercial, social capital of the world in Paul's day, land access to central Greece, water access to the Mediterranean and all of its various trade routes. It was home of the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, and with it, this culture of cultic temple prostitution. So that if Paul was religiously lost, we can consider Corinth to be the corrupt, irreligiously lost cosmopolitan city. Paul's writing to a group of Christians in the city of Corinth, to a church that he had planted on his second missionary journey, again, going back to the book of Acts. It's the city where, uh, if you remember from our study of Acts, Paul set up shop right next door to the Jewish synagogue in town and proceeded to lead the head rabbi to Jesus along with his entire family. It's the city where Paul spent roughly two years evangelizing unbelievers and discipling new Christians. To catch us up to speed on where we are in in the storyline of the Corinthian church as we dive into this uh, series, Paul puts pen to paper to write 2 Corinthians, the book that we're about to study, about a year after having written 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians being the letter in which Paul addresses things like loving Greek philosophy and rhetoric more than Jesus, treating church leaders like Christian rock stars, suing one another over relational conflicts, soliciting prostitutes, getting drunk during communion, questioning the validity of the resurrection. I mean, it's a wonder that Paul even uses the language of the church in addressing these people, right? Many of us would would write off a body of believers for far less than what was going down in Corinth. To use the language that I used in our study of 1 Corinthians a few years back, Corinth is the smelly kid in class. Corinth is the loner at the lunch table. Corinth is the kid who can't throw, And the beauty of the gospel, Jesus came for Corinth. It's tattooed all over the pages of the gospel accounts. From pagans, prostitutes, to thieves and drunkards, Jesus came for Corinth. From tax collectors and adulterers to liars and murderers, Jesus came for Corinth. So that it's not just the story of Paul that declares the sovereign grace of God, but also the story of Corinth. That as I just mentioned, if the story of Paul declares to us the mercy and grace of God toward the religious lost, the story of Corinth declares to us the mercy and grace of God toward the irreligious lost. So that if you come into this place this morning believing that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, you are solely mistaken. That no matter what the past and present chapters of your story look like, I've said it before, I'll say it a thousand more times by God's grace, Are you a great sinner? Make no mistake about it. Is Jesus a greater savior? Yes, amen, and hallelujah. Wonder of wonders that Jesus came for Corinth. I don't know what you bring into this place this morning. My guess is that many of us, most of us, are probably professing followers of Jesus. If you're not, I hope you see that if your story is one of religiosity, that God's grace is big enough to overcome your morality, your righteousness. And that if you come in this morning believing that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, that you would see that Jesus came for Corinth. 
and that if you are a Christian, that you would look back on the past chapters of your life, whichever of, of those backgrounds you come from, and would declare a wonder of wonder that this is a God who, who reaches into both ditches, the ditch of irreligiosity and religiosity, and he rescues lost sinners by his grace. Roughly a year has gone by since Paul's penning of 1 Corinthians, a year filled with a lot of drama. Paul's received word through Timothy that the church is not in a good place, having been influenced by false teachers. Let that be a reminder to us that it doesn't take very long for a church to veer off the gospel path so that our vision for 2020 stay on the gospel path. It's very simple. Paul pays the church an abrupt visit in light of having heard that they're not in a good place in an attempt to seek to restore the church, a visit that's pretty painful for the Apostle Paul as many openly rebel against him, calling his apostleship into question so that Paul then leaves for Ephesus where he writes a letter calling them to repent. It's a letter that he sends by way of Titus, a letter that we don't have anymore. It's been lost since then, but it is referenced here in 2 Corinthians and the response to that lost letter is one of revival, as many uh, in the church in Corinth do in fact repent, though there is a rebellious minority that remains. That's where we pick up the story. Paul puts pen to paper to write what's come to be known as Second Corinthians, arguably the most emotional of all of Paul's writings, as we'll see throughout the course of this series. Paul has every reason, I think it would be fair to say, to cut his losses, to just write off this church, to, to use that Revelation chapters two and three language of, of snuffing out their lamppost. And yet, he writes to them in the hopes that God might pour out his grace upon them, even going so far to begin his letter, not end it, begin his letter with a benediction, a pronouncement of blessing upon these people. Look at verse two. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, may you experience the unmerited favor of God towards sinners. And peace, shalom, may you experience an inner sense of flourishing and wholeness. And Paul knows that those things come in the context of knowing God as Father and Jesus as Lord. God our Father reminding us that Jesus has purchased our adoption, that we might know the grace and peace of a relationship with our Heavenly Father. The cross reminding us that God gave his own son that we might become sons and daughters of God rescued out of the dumpsters of depravity, given a home, given a name, our Father in heaven, to use that language from the Sermon on the Mount series back in the fall. The Lord Jesus Christ, that language reminding us that the once crucified Savior and servant is now the exalted master, worthy of our glad submission, which is no small detail, being that Paul's writing in large part to make clear that God's power is made perfect in weakness, What's the song that, that ultimately declares triumph through seeming weakness? It's the song of the gospel, right? Nowhere is it more clearly displayed than the seeming weakness of the crucified lamb, now the enthroned lion. A theme that not only evidenced in the life and ministry of the apostle Paul, as we'll see throughout this series, but in the lives of, of any and all who follow Jesus. That God loves, he loves, loves to flex when we're at the end of ourselves. His power made perfect in weakness. So that as we come in throughout this series, we can expect to encounter the, the paradoxical, comfort and affliction, Paul will talk about, richness and poverty, strength and weakness. 
which is going to push back on, on a lot of the, the, the thinking in, in our context, in our society, in our day and age. I don't know if you've perused social media much over the course of the turning of the page to 2020, but usually you see the kind of language ramp up around this time of year, the the kind of language that would say, this year, I'm gonna trust in the one thing that I know I can count on, myself. I'm gonna make my dreams come true. I'm going to fulfill everything that I hope for in my own life. I can't trust others to make it happen but I can trust in me. And Paul's going to call that kind of thinking not only sinful, but foolish. It's a both and. And he's gonna show that this is a God who will bring us to the end of ourselves if that's what it takes for us to trust in him, to lean on him, to depend on him, to rely on him rather than ourselves. God will do it, whatever it takes, knowing that we are the greatest enemies of our own joy. And God will fight for our joy more than we will fight for our own joy. And so I'll go ahead and tell you, this is a dangerous series to lean into. It presents us with some dangerous prayers. Are we really willing to pray, God, whatever it takes in 2020 to cause me to rely upon you? But we see in the life of the Apostle Paul something beautiful in this reliance upon God in the midst of affliction and weakness. And it's an opportunity for the gospel to shine brightly. And we have that opportunity so that I would say, yes, expect the paradoxical but also expect to be encouraged. Expect to be encouraged to trust God in the midst of present uncertainty, knowing that our future is certain. This light momentary affliction preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Encouraged to to boast in suffering, knowing that that God uses uh, our sufferings and affliction to produce in us humility and strength that we would not otherwise know. Encouraged to live as ambassadors of reconciliation, knowing that we've been undeservedly reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. Encouraged to live lives of radical generosity, knowing that Jesus has been radically generous to us and becoming poor for our sake so that we might become rich in him. Those are the themes that we're going to encounter as we move into this series and I think is incredibly appropriate for us as we move into a new year. If I could just speak a benediction over us before we get to the benediction at the end of this service, it would be this, that over the course of the next few months as we explore this book of the Bible, my prayer is this, may God overwhelm you and me with a grace and peace like we've never known as he opens our eyes all the more to the beauty and indispensability of the gospel, a gospel that shines in the midst of affliction and weakness. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship this God who flexes when we're at the end of ourselves, we have an opportunity to do that in, in a few different ways. As we sing to him, as we present our song, we bring it individually and, and together as a collective voice in unison, in unity. Through the receiving of communion, it's another way we worship as we gather in this place. Uh, if you're new, we take the bread here representing the broken body and dip it in the cup representing the shed blood of Jesus. If you're a Christian, That meal is for you. As you prepare to receive of the elements this morning, I just encourage you to to pause for a second and and to to get that visual, that imagery in your mind of God flexing in, in a moment of seeming defeat as Jesus is on the cross and showing his triumph in the midst of that apparent seeming defeat. That's what God does. 
Come and, and celebrate as you receive the bread and the cup and celebrate that that's your God. That, that when all hope seems lost, God loves to move and work and flex in those kind of moments and seasons of our lives. We have an opportunity to, to celebrate and worship him in communion, receiving of the elements, and through prayer. There'll be people in the back of our auditorium to pray with and for you on our prayer team. Would love to, to pray, particularly if you find yourself in the midst of weakness and affliction, perhaps in one of those dark nights of the soul. Maybe it's hard for you to, to even approach God's throne of grace uh, in, in this season of your life. Take advantage of, of our prayer team. Come, come back to the back of the auditorium in these moments to come and allow them to pray with you, for you, to lift you up to this flexing God who loves to, to use those dark nights of the soul to bring himself glory and to instill a deeper joy and strength and humility in his people.